Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You guys need to check out June's journey. Engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Where will each new chapter take you? Discover hidden clues and solve a riveting murder mystery. Engage with the brain-teasing enigmas of the Roaring Twenties and delve into June's quest to reveal a scandalous family secret. You guys, I love getting lost in this world. It's so beautiful and engaging, and I can't wait to unwind at the end of the day on the couch with this game and a cup of tea. So can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. With summer closing in, I'm so ready to ditch my cold weather clothes and say hello to shorts and tees. But I don't want to just buy what's trendy. I want to update timeless, high-quality summer pieces that I can utilize for all seasons and years to come without spending a fortune. And now I've got a lineup of beautiful clothes from Quince that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. Like premium European linen dresses, Blouses and shorts from $30. That's what I'm talking about, babe. There's washable silk tops, 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. And the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less oh than gosh. similar brands. It's actually because they partner directly with top factories, so Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to you. I actually just ordered their linen shorts, tops, and pants that I plan to wear for this summer because they're lightweight, and I'm so excited to get them and start planning my Quince capsule wardrobe for my summer travels. Honestly, I have so much Quince clothing, and I love it all. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com husband for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash husband to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash husband hey everybody welcome back to our podcast this is murder with my husband i'm peyton moreland and i'm garrett moreland and he's the husband and i'm the husband so we actually received some more dear daisy submissions after talking about it on last week's podcast so i'm super excited for those another episode of dear daisy stories those are stories written in by listeners is coming this week so stay tuned I'm going to jump into my 10 seconds myself this week. I'm a little upset because there is currently a leak in our water heater, on our water heater, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I'm just dealing with that. It's fine. It's okay. I'm not bothered at all. We just had it replaced five months ago because it was leaking. I was like, great. Don't have to do this for another X amount of years. Boom. New one that they just replaced is leaking. I mean, I'm sure they're going to come out and fix it for free because they just replaced it like six months ago. But yeah, we just have no hot water for a couple of days. So we'll see what happens. I took a cold shower this morning. Peyton did too. Using my Kitsch products. <laughs> You're so stupid. So yeah, cold shower, water heater's broken. I wish I could just fix it myself. You know, like I wish I knew how to fix it. I You should try being a handyman. I would not make it very far. Like watch, I, I can, I can do basic stuff, but that water heater, it's like leaking everywhere. <laughs> There's water coming out all over the place. That reminds me one time when Garrett and I were very first married, our garbage disposal broke. Oh yeah. yeah. And he was trying to fix it and he was under there and it kept leaking water on him. And so he went and got his <laughs> swimming goggles. Oh, do you have a picture of that? <laughs> I, I might be able to find it. Okay. And he was using his swimming goggles to 
work on the garbage disposal. I didn't have any tools yet. I was still a noob. I just didn't. (laughs) I wasn't ready for life at that point. I was like 22. It was so And he worked on that garbage disposal for two days. I got it, though. I finally took it out. (laughs) Now I can do a garbage disposal in like 15 minutes. Yeah, you are fast at it It just, oh, that was horrible. So now water heaters, again, I'm saying it again, broken. I'm just mad, but I'll be okay. If anyone ever needs their garbage disposal or sink replaced, I got you. I can do it. All right. Let's get into today's case, starting with our episode sources. We have A Thirst for Blood, The True Story of California's Vampire Killer, The Richard Chase Murders, Wikipedia, Murderpedia, Newspapers.com. Okay, so I think it would be irresponsible of me not to preface today's story with a trigger warning. This is true crime at its darkest and most grotesque. I debated whether or not this was even too much for our podcast. This story contains gory and disturbing details of grisly acts of mutilation and abuse of dead bodies that isn't for the faint of heart. So I just wanted to preface that. I might leave. Okay, you can if there's, you want there's to. a good chance. All of for everyone out there, there has been there's probably been two cases that I've left in the middle of. Yeah. You probably didn't notice because we just panned the camera to Peyton and had her finish, but there we'll see. has been two. We'll see if I get through this one. So in criminal profiling, it's generally thought that serial killers fall into one of two categories organized offenders and disorganized offenders. Organized offenders are methodical, meticulous, careful, and controlled. They plan their crimes well. Disorganized offenders, on the other hand, are messy and impulsive. Their crimes are often crimes of opportunity with little to no planning. And they're more likely to get caught because they don't exercise the same degree of caution and self-preservation as the organized offender. So if organized offenders are like patient spiders... Disorganized offenders are like rabid dogs. And today's story, the story of the vampire of Sacramento, is about one such disorganized offender. So the FBI once estimated that there are between 30 and 40 serial killers operating across the United States at any given time. And I think in the 1970s and 80s, that number may have been much, much higher Because Sacramento at that time seemed to be like some kind of mecca for serial killers. There was the Golden State Killer, who was active in Sacramento from 1976 to 1979. Gerald and Charlene Gallego, the serial killing couple. Roger Kibbe, the I-5 Strangler, who I covered on our sister podcast, Binged. The Speed Freak Killers, Lauren Herzog and Wesley Sherman Time. Dorothy Puenta, the so-called death house landlady. I mean, California is the most populous state in the country, so I guess it makes sense. It's the state that spawned the most serial killers and that its capital has been home to a disturbing concentration of them. But our case today takes place on December 29th, 1977. Ambrose Griffin was an engineer with the Bureau of Land Management. He lived in the Arden Arcade area of Sacramento, which is the largest single residential area in the county. He, his wife Carol, and their daughter-in-law Gail were returning from the grocery store that night. It was around 8.30 p.m. Ambrose handed his wife the keys, and she unlocked the trunk, grabbing a bag of groceries. Ambrose then took two bags while Gail held open the front door. 
They set the bags down on the kitchen counter and Ambrose returned to the driveway for the final bag. Now, while Ambrose was outside, his family heard the engine of a car nearing, driving past, slowing down, and suddenly there were two loud pops that sounded like a car backfiring and then the engine whined as the car sped away. Carol peeked outside and saw her husband fall to the ground and she thought mm. he was having a heart attack. Okay. I've been shot though, he told her very weakly as he lay on the ground dying. But Carol still believed he was having a heart attack. Like despite the loud pops, in spite of her husband telling her he'd been shot, yeah, it's weird. it was just so outside the realm of what anyone expected would happen. So she couldn't wrap her head around it. So it wasn't until the ambulance came and lifted him off the ground that everyone saw the blood on Ambrose's shirt. And it became obvious to everyone that yes, indeed, he had been shot. Ambrose was whisked away to American River Hospital where his blood pressure on arrival was 40 over zero. This is not a good sign. Ambrose had already lost a lot of blood. And despite a transfusion and the best efforts of the emergency room crew, within 40 minutes of his arrival at the hospital, Ambrose Griffin, 51-year-old veteran of the Second World War, husband and father, was pronounced dead. Jeez. The fatal bullet had struck him in the chest and penetrated his diaphragm and lung and resulted in too much blood loss to have been survivable. So just to clarify, it was just a drive-by, correct? That's what it seems like because it was so fast, yeah. right? But the other bullet, remember she heard two pops? Mm -hmm. It was later learned had actually missed Ambrose and had struck a tree right beside him. So he'd actually only been shot once and died, which is crazy because sometimes in these cases, victims are shot six, like seven times, times and I live. Know. I know. it's it Luck of the draw. Yeah, it makes no sense. So investigators were totally baffled by this crime. There was no apparent motive. Ambrose had no enemies that anybody could think of. It seemed to be a random drive-by shooting, like Garrett said. And this was one of the safer neighborhoods in this part of Sacramento. But when police began canvassing the neighborhood, which is something they do after a major crime like this, they go door to door to find out if anyone had seen anything suspicious. When police were doing this neighborhood canvas, they discovered that this wasn't the first shooting in this relatively quiet subdevelopment in recent weeks. There was this couple who lived a couple of doors down from the Griffins who told police that exactly one week earlier, the husband had been taking out the garbage when he heard what sounded like a gunshot, and then he saw a light-colored car fly past his house. But he couldn't say what kind of car it was or even what color it was. He didn't see anything clearly, he said, because he didn't have his glasses on at the time. So keep in mind, those of you who wear glasses, next time you take your trash out, do put them on. You don't want to be like Velma and Scooby-Doo. I mean, it sounds like if this is the second drive-by shooting within two weeks, yeah. it must not be that safe of an area. Right. Or just a coincidence. I don't know. Well, I think it just goes to show that there's obviously something happening mm -hmm. in this area. So the couple that lived three doors down and heard the gunshot the, the week before, they reported hearing those gunshots. It was actually Christmas Day. And the gunshots sounded like they were coming from the direction of a creek nearby. So Sacramento has creeks running all throughout it. Those of you who are familiar with the Golden State Killer case know that when the GSK was active in Sacramento, which was at the time this story takes place, he often traveled those creek beds when they were dry so he could move around unseen. Wow. Now, it wasn't all that unusual to hear gunshots coming from the creek area in this neighborhood because 
that's where people would often go plinking. Do you know what plinking is? Plinking P-L-I or plinking P- as in P-L-A? Okay, P-L-I. We're in the 70s. I don't think plinking was a thing yet. <laughs> I have no idea what plinking is. It's when people do casual target shooting at like aluminum cans or bottles. Oh, it's called plinking? Yeah. So oh. people would go plinking in the creek. And in this part of Sacramento, people would fire their guns in the creek bed. Like okay. this was the safe place to do it. It wasn't illegal at the time and it was rarely reported to police because the police wouldn't generally do anything. So that would explain why these incidents were just now coming to the attention of law enforcement. This guy in this neighborhood hearing gunshots. It didn't take till someone was actually shot in the area for him to say, well, I did hear gunshots a week earlier. Police learned in their canvas about other recent incidents of porch lights and windshields being shot out in the area, basically vandalism. Because of this, one theory police developed early on was that the killing of Ambrose Griffin was unintentional and that the bullets were what they termed wild shots from a, quote, roving car of vandals. Like maybe this car was just trying to shoot out more Mm. porch lights and hit Ambrose. But there had been a report filed just two days before the Ambrose Griffin murder, a report that went overlooked until a week and a half after the killing. It was on December 27th that a woman named Dorothy Polinsky had been doing her dishes when she suddenly heard an ear-piercing pop. At the same time, her kitchen window broke and she felt something hot pass through her hair, which she was wearing up in a bun that was rested on top of her head. She was certain it was a bullet, but when police responded and looked around her house, no bullet was found Can at the scene. you imagine a bullet just flying through your hair? No, and then police show up and go, no, uh, we can't find any, so we're going to conclude our investigation. Yeah, what are the chances of that? Right? So random shooting, no injuries, is what the report read. But now, it seemed potentially significant, especially because the Polinsky home was just four blocks away in the same neighborhood as the Griffin house. So the detectives investigating Ambrose Griffin's murder showed up at Dorothy's doorstep and asked if they could take a look around her kitchen. She let the detectives in, and after half an hour of inspecting every square inch of the woman's kitchen, they opened a cupboard and found a 22 caliber slug lodged in one of the shelves. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, Dorothy felt this bullet pass through her hair. The detectives carefully carved that bullet out of the shelf and sent it to the ballistics expert who concluded that the bullet fired at Dorothy Polinsky came from the same gun that murdered Ambrose Griffin. So this was scary because it seemed they had a random shooter on the prowl and they had no idea where he might strike next. Nearly a month passed without a single viable lead. But then... It was on the morning of January 23rd, 1978, that this story took a turn so gruesome, there's no way to report on this without making your stomach churn. So, fair warning. Teresa Wallen was a 22-year-old woman who lived about a mile and a half from where Ambrose Griffin was murdered. Okay. So, not right around the corner, but still in the same general area. Teresa had been married for about three years, and she was three months pregnant with what would be her first child. Teresa was a state employee, but that Monday she had the day off, while her husband David, who worked as a truck driver, was driving to Lake Tahoe that day, leaving her alone in the house. That morning, Teresa needed to cash a check, so she walked to the corner market, which was right behind her house, literally, 
She only had to walk through her own backyard and then she was at the pantry market. The market employees knew Teresa because she was a regular customer there and they saw her come and then go at around 10.30 that morning. They were the last people to see her alive. That evening, David Wallen clocked out of work at around 5 p.m. and was joined for drinks by his trainee. They drank some beer at a local bar around the corner from his house and after splitting two pitchers, they parted ways. David drove the short distance home to find the house dark. He opened the door, switched on the porch light to light his way into the darkened house. Inside, he could hear the stereo playing, which was odd. Odd that... Oh, how creepy is that? Yeah, if his wife was home, the lights would be out, yet the stereo would be on. Where some people's minds would go first here is that maybe their spouse is in the bedroom with someone else. And I'm not saying that's what David first suspected, but whatever was on his mind is surely changed as soon as he saw the bag of spilled garbage that was strewn about the house. He called out for Teresa, but he didn't get a response from her. Time out real quick. Would you keep going to look for me or would you call 911 and stop there? I'd keep going. You would? Yeah, because like even if, if the house looked trashed. What if they were in the house? I don't know. I think my immediate thing would just be to make sure you're okay. Yeah, me too. I don't R- believe No, you. really, I would keep going because I think in the moment I'd be like... You wouldn't think I was murdered. No, I'd, I would be like, oh, I got to find my wife. Like, why did my wife I don't have time spill all this garbage and not pick it up? Yeah. When we started podcasting, an online store was honestly the furthest thing from our minds. But now we're selling Murder With My Husband merch and it's so easy because we use Shopify. And we really do. We use Shopify to sell our merch. I've been using Shopify for years. So it is absolutely amazing, easy to use, so intuitive. I love it. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And it's great because they grow with you. So whether you're just launching your shop or you've just hit a million orders they are there every step of the way shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36 percent better compared to other leading commerce platforms we've actually tried a couple other platforms before we started using shopify to sell our merch and shopify is just the best um i've been using it for years like i've said and I just love having control over it and being able to do what I want. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com husband. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com husband now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com husband. Do you ever find that when you're traveling, you can't help but worry about what's going on back home? Like, again, did you remember to lock up everything or close all the windows? It's so easy for those little concerns to nag at you while you're trying to enjoy your trip. And that's why we highly recommend looking into Simply Safe Home Security today. It's all about giving you the top-notch security and total peace of mind, no matter where your summer adventures take you. It's like having that extra layer of protection so you can truly relax and enjoy your time away. You guys, I know that when we travel, it is so nice to just have that peace of mind. You know, it's not only for when you're home and you don't want someone breaking in, but like also when you're away from home and you just want to know that your house is safe. And that is what Simply Safe gives you. There's a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras we've installed. So we have a view of all our entry points. Plus, Simply Safe was named Best Home Security System 2024 by the U.S. News and the World Report. Simply Safe has given us and many of our listeners real peace of mind. 
I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/husband. There's no safe like Simply Safe. So, the only response David did get was from their German shepherd who approached him and paced around him nervously. Ugh. Now the dog's behavior was weird, and as David followed a trail of dark spots on the floor which he thought were oil stains into the master bedroom, it was there that he found the body of his wife. But he didn't just find the body of his wife. He found the mutilated body wow. of his wife. He was shocked by the horror of what he saw. Her eyes were wide open. Her tongue was hanging out. There was a large gaping hole in her stomach. What? Yes. I'm not going to go into too much more detail, but her whole body had been messed with. How? That's so scarring. Yes. Like traumatizing. David began screaming. He staggered into the kitchen where, with trembling hands, he dialed his brother and father, who came right over. David ran outside of the house to his next-door neighbor's house where, barely intelligible, he managed to explain that his wife was dead and he needed help. They phoned the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office. When Lieutenant Ray Biondi arrived at the house, he noticed there were no pry marks on any of the exterior doors. So either the killer had gained entry through an unlocked door or the victim let him in. Inside the master bedroom, Teresa was lying on her back. It looked like she may have been sexually assaulted based on her clothing and the way she was posed. Her whole torso had been cut open from her sternum down to her hips. That makes no sense. Her pancreas had been cut in half. Her spleen was removed completely. Her stomach and liver were cut. Her intestines were yanked halfway out of her abdomen. Her left lung had been cut in half and her kidneys were cut out. One of them placed into her chest cavity. So it's almost as if this person was doing An like... An animal. Yes. A science experiment. Absolutely. On a human. Animal. So this is more brutal than what even Jack the Ripper did to his final known victim, Mary Kelly. If there was any mercy shown to this poor woman, it's that she was killed quickly by a gunshot wound to her left temple before any of these things oh, were done to okay. her. I want to say that's good, but that's it's just not because, good. But yeah, yeah. Next to her body, investigators noted ring-shaped blood stains on the floor. It looked like something like a bucket had been placed in those spots and then removed from the scene. They also found an empty yogurt container with blood inside of it. This was a crime scene more horrific than any of these hardened, seasoned detectives had ever seen. And little did they know, the worst was still yet to come. I can't even imagine how, you know, these crime scenes just continue to get worse for these detectives. But we're going to continue on. We will power through this. So because the family's German shepherd had been inside the house during the murder, some of the investigators believe the killer must have been known to the victim, while others, like Lieutenant Biondi, wasn't sold on this theory. It was a confusing crime scene from an investigative standpoint. Robbery did not appear to be a motive. Nothing of value had been taken. Expensive jewelry Teresa was wearing had been left on her body by her killer. Two rifles inside the bedroom where the murder took place were left undisturbed. And the waterbed was also intact. If the killer were concerned about leaving evidence behind, he could have easily just punctured the waterbed, letting it flood the floor, washing away potentially valuable evidence. But he didn't do that. This was a messy, sloppy crime scene. And the first real suspect that was put forth 
was in fact an ex-girlfriend of Teresa's husband, a woman who was devastated when David married Teresa. And when she attended their wedding, she followed David around the reception hall, telling him how much she loved him. She wouldn't leave him alone. I'm going to, and I don't want this to come off sexist or anything, but I just feel like there's no way a woman did this. To another, yeah. I mean, yeah, is it possible? 100%. Right. But I just feel... Is it likely? Instinctively, my gut says a man like i don't you know what i'm saying well and i also think like although you know they're probably saying who would want to hurt Teresa, and everyone goes oh the girl who was acting super weird at their wedding and was yeah. stalking david it's and like obsessed it's with not him. just hurt her right it's like completely rip her apart in a very like out of control like, manner there's no way this girl that yeah yeah so this behavior did seem slightly deranged at the wedding. It was one of David's sisters who suggested police look into her because the woman also had told the sister she had psychic powers, could see into the future, and was in a devil cult. However, the sex girlfriend was quickly eliminated when she provided a solid alibi, which police vetted. The family still remained convinced that Teresa was murdered by someone she knew. During their investigation, detectives gathered information from David about the last few days of Teresa's life and the ordinariness of them, how normal her last 72 hours on earth were, stood in eerie contrast with the unparalleled otherworldly gruesomeness of her death. They'd gone to a Mexican restaurant for dinner. They'd played cards with friends. Oh my they went bowling and had breakfast with so David's family. Sad. Nothing in any of these activities surrounded a single clue as to who may have killed Teresa. It's got to be someone they don't know because I just feel like someone you know doesn't do this. Right. I know that sounds weird, but well, like how many people do you know in your life personally that could possibly rip you apart? I don't think I know anyone who could kill me. That's but what I mean. Oh. It happens all the time. I know that they're very persistent on the fact that they think it's someone they know. But I feel like at this point, it's we got to move on because there's no I way it agree is. Too. So police don't know where to go next. But luckily, they learned something during their neighborhood canvas. Neighbor after neighbor reported sightings of and interactions with what seemed to be the same individual. A weird man, white in his mid-20s and scrawny wearing an orange ski parka. He looked dirty, like he didn't belong in the neighborhood, and was seen walking across people's front lawns and front porches. Police needed to find out who this man was, because when the two twenty-two caliber slugs that killed Teresa were removed from her skull, they were found to be a match to the bullet that was fired into Ambrose Griffin nearly a month earlier. <sighs> It makes me even more surprised that a 22 is what killed him with one shot. It must have hit him just right. I think I'm more surprised that this killer just did a drive-by shooting and drove away and then broke into someone's house and shot them and then yeah. spent however long dissecting their body. Like, how are those two crimes even not, similar? Not at all. And I'm also guessing it's the same bullet that flew through. Yes. What's her name? Dorothy's. That flew through Dorothy's hair. Yes. So this person's just tormenting this neighborhood, but I think they're like on a rampage that they're not even thinking clearly about. Well, clearly not. So whatever the killer's motive, there was a very steep escalation between his first crime. I mean, it's escalated quickly. Mm -hmm. A random drive-by shooting and this horrific mutilation and rearranging of the victim's organs. 
So investigators were now doubling down on their efforts to figure out this killer's identity before he upped his ante even more, even if it didn't seem like that was possible to anyone with a sane and rational mind. Investigators also learned about a burglary report that was filed the same day Teresa was brutally murdered, earlier in the morning. This burglary occurred just a few blocks away from where Ambrose Griffin had been shot and killed. A man, described as a white male adult in his early to mid-20s, was seen trying to force open the back door of a residence on Bernice Street. The woman inside heard the noise and went to investigate it, and she then found the dirty-looking man standing on her back porch. When the man realized the occupant of the home saw him and was standing there, he uttered the words, excuse me, before then having a seat on her porch while the woman called police. What? After a few minutes, he then left on foot, walking north on the block until he reached the corner. That's when he climbed in through the rear window of the Edwards residence, which, fortunately for the family, was empty at the time this person broke inside. The man rifled through drawers and boxes, pocketed a small amount of cash, and filled his bag with some other valuables from the home, before then opening a dresser drawer full of clothing and urinating inside of it. Then he went to another bedroom in the house, a child's bedroom, and proceeded to defecate on the child's bed. Who is this person? What What's even happening right now? Right. But while this creep was still inside the house, the Edwards family returned home, just in time to catch the guy trying to remove a decorator sword and dagger from their wall. The intruder quickly bolted through the same rear window he'd used to enter the house, but Bob Edwards, the man of the home, ran after him through the neighborhood. As the man ran, he yelled back at Bob, I was only taking a shortcut. The man eventually outran Bob Edwards, who lost sight of him. Bob then got into his car and drove up and down the area, finally seeing the man again on Watt Avenue, the main road. But then the man disappeared inside an apartment complex and Bob went back to his house. The man was described as about 5 foot 10 to 6 feet tall in his early to mid 20s with a slim build wearing blue jeans, black sneakers, and an orange jacket. Witnesses assisted the police in creating a composite sketch of this man, which was released to the media. So this man was basically meandering around this neighborhood, breaking in, acting creepy, doing awful things in people's Mm -hmm. homes. And then later that night, Teresa was murdered. So police work on this sketch, and in the days following, reports started trickling in of a strange man seen in the surrounding neighborhoods, a man fitting this composite sketch. So he obviously hasn't left the area. The day after Teresa's murder, a woman on Park Estates Drive, about a mile south, heard a knock at her front door shortly after noon. When she opened the door, a young man who appeared unshaven and filthy asked her if she had any old magazines. She said she didn't. He became upset and asked her if she was sure she didn't, at which point she closed the door. Several other residents in the area were visited by the same man going door to door asking for old magazines. He had specifically asked at least one homeowner for copies of Cosmopolitan and Mad Magazine, and when she said she didn't have any, he told her he'd take whatever she had. She promised to gather them over the next day or so and leave them in a bundle for him on her porch. He told her he'd come back in a few days to collect, and then left. On January 25th, two days after the Wallen murder, police interviewed a young couple who reported having sold two Labrador puppies to a man they described as scrawny with stringy hair driving a ratty Ford Ranchero. Yeah, 
Come on. What first struck them as odd about this man was that he didn't seem interested in what the puppies looked like or what sex they were. Oh, man. Like, red flag, don't sell them. Mm -hmm. Trigger warning, we're going to talk about animal cruelty. And then the following day, they found one of those puppies dead on their back patio. The puppy had been shot and its stomach had been cut open. This is a serial killer. Oh, yeah. Like, all the signs are there. Everything we know about serial killers. Like, this is a full-blown, just evil person. I don't know. I mean, there's no other way to really describe him. Right. And I also just, like, if he's still wandering around the neighborhood, how hasn't he been caught? That's all I could think while doing know, the research, like the, everyone's now putting it together, all the neighbors. Oh, he came to your house too, and oh, there's this one guy magazines knocking on all of our doors, it's but also we just, still can't catch him. It's also so different. I mean, now with so many cameras around, right? If I see a guy come to my door, and then I see him go to like a bunch of neighbors' doors, I'd be like, "What's going on?" He must be selling pest control. He must be selling freaking alarms. <laughs> <laughs> so the puppy was taken for forensic examination by a vet and a pathologist. They recovered bullet fragments from the animal that could only be confirmed as a 22 caliber bullet, like the bullets that had killed Ambrose Griffin and Teresa Wallen. So remember when I said a little while ago that after Teresa's murder, the worst was still yet to come? Mm-hmm. Well, here you go. We've arrived at that part in the story. So brace yourself. Evelyn Miroth was a 38-year-old single stay-at-home mom raising two sons, 13-year-old Vernon and 6-year-old Jason. She also loved being an aunt, and she often babysat for her 22-month-old nephew, David. Evelyn's sister, Karen Ferreira, dropped baby David off at Evelyn's house at around 7 a.m. on the morning of Friday, January 27, 1978. While David napped, Evelyn mowed her lawn and was visited by a friend of hers named Daniel Meredith. Now, while Daniel was at the house, Evelyn got a phone call from her other friend, Neoni Grangard, who lived just across the street from her. Neoni asked Evelyn if she and her son, Jason, wanted to join her and her young daughters on a drive up into the mountains to play in the snow. Now, this sounded like a delightful way to spend a Friday morning, but Evelyn had to stay and babysit her nephew. But Jason can go if that's okay, she told Neoni, who was more than happy to bring Evelyn's son, who was the same age as one of her daughters. Neoni agreed to drop by to pick up Jason at 10 a.m. But after that call, Evelyn realized she didn't have any snowshoes for Jason. So she called Neoni back and asked if she could postpone by half an hour so she could go to the sporting goods store and rent a pair of snowshoes, which was no problem. They hung up and Neoni looked out her front window toward Evelyn's house and happened to notice a familiar red station wagon parked in Evelyn's driveway. She recognized the vehicle as belonging to Daniel Meredith, whom she knew was a friend of Evelyn's. Then Evelyn emerged from the house and got into her car, which pulled away. Neone assumed Daniel was taking her to the sporting goods store. Also, Neone noticed that the garage door was left open, although she didn't pay too much mind to this. Evelyn had opened the garage to mow the lawn, That's where a lot of people keep the mower and apparently had just forgot to close it. Neone periodically looked out the window, keeping an eye on Evelyn's house, partly because the garage door was open and it was just neighborly concern, but also because she didn't want to be delayed too long. She was feeling a little antsy. She wanted the car to get back so they could leave. She was trying not to regret the invitation because really she wanted to have already been on the road by this point. By 10.30, Neone noticed the station wagon was back in the driveway. They had returned from wherever they went, presumably the sporting goods store. 
So Neoni thought she'd be hearing from Evelyn any moment. But the clock kept ticking. Mm. Half an hour passed. It was now 11 a.m. Why don't you go across the street and see what's keeping them? Neoni asked her six-year-old daughter, Tracy, who then walked across the street and knocked on Evelyn's front door. Nobody answered. She peered through the front window and didn't see anyone, though she did see some faint movement of some kind in the living room. She couldn't tell what it was. She went back across the street and told her mother no one came to the door. Neoni at this point was impatient. 20 more minutes passed and she looked out the window and noticed the red station wagon was gone again. She took her daughter by the hand, marched across the street, and rang Evelyn's doorbell. And nothing. No movement, no reply. Neoni was irritated, but she also felt a hint of worry. What if something happened, she thought. Once you try Bombas, you'll never look at socks the same way again. They've obsessed over details like foot-hugging honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds that feel like pillows for your feet. And let's not forget their super soft tees and tagless underwear. Bombas has a one purchased equals one donated mission. Every time you buy their socks, tees, or underwear, you also donate essential clothing to someone facing homelessness. Today, Bombas has donated over 100 million clothing items and counting. Bombas also offers a 100% happiness guarantee. So whether your socks disappear in the dryer or they become a snack for your dog, they will actually do anything possible to replace it or make it right. They've also got this new Merino wool blend socks that naturally wick moisture and help regulate temperatures perfect for that rainy or unpredictable spring weather. You guys, I love Bombas. I literally wear them all the time. I love that every purchase means a donation to someone in need. And it's not just their socks either. I also love their tees and underwear they're so soft they pay attention to details i just really really love bombas get comfy this spring and give back with bombas head over to bombas.com husband and use code husband for 20 percent off your first purchase that's b-o-m-b-a-s.com husband and use code husband at checkout everyone loves a good family mystery especially one with as many twists and turns as june's journey step into the role of june parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder you guys need to check out june's journey engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery danger and romance where will each new chapter take you discover hidden clues and solve a riveting murder mystery engage with the brain teasing enigmas of the roaring 20s and delve into june's quest to reveal a scandalous family secret you guys i love getting lost in this world it's so beautiful and engaging and i can't wait to unwind at the end of the day on the couch with this game and a cup of tea so can you crack the case download june's journey for free today on ios and android she went to the door of evelyn's next door neighbor Catherine, and asked her if she'd seen evelyn leave with her son and friend Catherine said she hadn't but assured neoni not to worry so Naomi decided not to worry, and instead she decided to be ticked off. And once <laughs> noon rolled around, she wasn't going to wait any longer. So she loaded up her kids into the car and started driving away when she noticed a woman she recognized from the neighborhood going door to door with a petition. Did you happen to knock on Evelyn's door, she asked. The woman said she had, and no one answered. This just wasn't sitting right with Naomi. She'd known Evelyn long enough that the behavior just didn't fit. What a good neighbor. Right. And friend. When she saw another neighbor, Nancy Turner, returning home from a shopping trip, she flagged her down and told her, Hey, listen, Evelyn's son was supposed to join us for a trip into the mountains, but I suddenly stopped hearing from her. She's not answering calls or coming to her door. Where do you think she might be? Neoni asked. Nancy thought this all sounded pretty strange, and she told Neoni she'd go to Evelyn's house to see if everything was all right. 
Nancy went around to the back of the house and knocked on the rear door. When she got no reply, she turned the knob and the door opened. It had been unlocked. Nancy Turner walked inside, screamed, and immediately bolted from the residence yelling for help. There's blood everywhere, she yelled. Someone is dead. Some men in a Salvation Army furniture truck heard the commotion and offered to radio the sheriff's office from their truck. While they waited for sheriff's deputies and medics, a shaken Nancy Turner conferred with her neighbors. Nyoni mentioned she'd seen a red station wagon parked in the driveway that morning. The station wagon that was driven by that man, her friend, Daniel Meredith, and the middle-aged one everyone knew had been spending a lot of time with Evelyn and her sons, despite Evelyn having a boyfriend. He'd gone to Disneyland with them, and they spent the weekend together at a hotel. No one was quite clear on what their relationship was, and as the neighbors stood by, suspicions were voiced. And then, at around quarter to one that afternoon, the first sheriff's deputy arrived at the scene for what he thought would be a routine welfare check. The deputy, Ivan Clark, entered the rear door of the house and almost immediately saw a middle-aged man lying on the floor surrounded by blood. He leaned down and saw gunshot wounds in the man's head. The deputy looked around the house, which was completely still and silent, and saw blood everywhere. There was blood all over the bathroom, on the floor, the bathtub, inside the tub. Inside the tub was what looked like bloody water. He carefully walked down the hallway toward the open master bedroom door, and inside he saw a nude woman on the bed with her legs splayed apart and her stomach ripped open with a single long cut from her sternum down to her belly. Gosh, nothing prepares you for this. No. When you're going to be a police officer military firefighter whatever it is any type of you know public service um position like that it just nothing prepares you for that you think you might be prepared but i just cannot imagine going through that it's insane well and just like the teresa wallen scene this woman's organs were hanging out of her body why it's horrifying but familiar deputy clark had actually seen video footage of the teresa wallen murder scene and this looked just like it so he immediately drew the connection He ran outside the house and tried calling dispatch from his cruiser, but the signal was so bad that it garbled his transmission. He kept asking for homicide until he was practically screaming into the radio. He then sealed off the house, shaking as he did so. When the other deputies arrived, led by Lieutenant Biondi, they could see from the ashen color of Deputy Clark's face that what awaited them inside would shake them to their core. The team entered the house and began collecting evidence, like the cigarette butts in the garage and the two 22 caliber shell cartridges found next to the body of the adult male in the living room. On the carpet in the master bedroom, investigators observed blood-stained rings suggesting that a bucket had been set down near where the killer was mutilating the victim. Which, again, makes no sense. Why a bucket? I'm... I mean, I can have theories on it, but I'm not going to say until you get further into it. Well, it gets worse. On the other side of the bed, they found the body of a six-year-old boy with two gunshot wounds to the back of the head. Police canvassed the neighborhood, and the most useful information they obtained was from an 11-year-old girl down the block who told police she had observed a man near the crime scene at around 11 a.m. He appeared to be in his early 20s and was wearing a bright-colored jacket. She couldn't remember much else about this individual, but it didn't sound like Daniel Meredith, the middle-aged friend of Evelyn's who drove the station wagon. And then, a short time later, Daniel Meredith would be ruled out as a suspect once the bodies inside the house were identified, because Daniel Meredith was one of them. And the adult woman was Evelyn Miroth, and the young boy was her son, Jason. So whoever the killer was had left with Daniel's red station wagon. 
But that wasn't all he left with. Around 3.30 that afternoon, Evelyn's sister, Karen Ferreira, arrived and told police she'd left her infant son behind. Evelyn was babysitting him. And with a kind of dread you can only imagine, she asked if they had found his body inside the house. But they had not. The crime scene investigators, though, had found a bullet hole in the pillow of the baby's crib, and there was blood all over it. So it was not looking promising that baby David was going to be found alive. But the house was searched all over and thoroughly, everywhere a two-year-old could possibly be hidden. A baby. A baby. And they found nothing. So where was the baby? And where was Daniel Meredith's car? Sheriff's deputies all over the area were searching for the victim's red station wagon, a search that extended into early evening. And finally, just as the sun was beginning to set, it was found. It had been found parked in the parking lot of the Sandpiper Apartments on Marconi Avenue. It was 1.3 miles away from Evelyn's house and even closer to Ambrose Griffin's residence where the victim was shot and killed by the same monstrous individual. Detectives who were summoned to this apartment complex contacted the building manager who gave them a list of all the residents who had assigned parking stalls. They checked out each of these individuals and came away empty-handed, which was disappointing to say the least. The autopsy of these latest victims revealed a level of animalistic violence that surpassed even what had been done to Teresa Wallens. Evelyn's genitals had been mutilated. Her uterus had been cut in six different places. Some of the biological material in the bathtub was found to be brain matter. These were such brutal, disgusting crimes. Details that I didn't even go all the way into. And they happened only four days apart. So the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office needed to find this guy like yesterday. Yeah, how do you not find someone that is doing this? Right. This. There was a degree of urgency in catching this guy that was felt throughout the force. Lieutenant Biondi had studied criminal profiling at the FBI Academy, and he sat down with his partner, Sergeant Don Haybecker, and created a profile of the killer. In the profile they drew up, they made the following assumptions. One, the killer would be a white male in his 20s. Thank you, Captain Obvious. This was because the neighborhoods he chose were primarily white, suburban, middle to upper middle class communities, and a non-white perpetrator would have stood out. And yet, no one in any of the canvases mentioned seeing a non-white male. And also, the man in the composite sketch from the burglary the morning Teresa Wallen was murdered was white. Two, they believe their killer would probably be schizophrenic. The basis for this theory was that the attacks had occurred in the middle of the day and not in the cloak of darkness. The killer made no effort to hide or remove evidence like bullet casings and knives from the crime scene. Mm. So he wasn't especially careful. Just, that, seem, that seems kind of weird to me. I I don't think so just because I think whoever's doing this is clearly very ill. I don't think, yeah. I don't think this guy probably functions in society very well. It's just a lot. Yeah. Three, they believed the killer would be unmarried, a loner, probably unable to hold down a job. They didn't think he was the kind of personality where his madness could be compartmentalized. These seem like very obvious profiles. Like, I'm not a detective, police officer, a profiler, but it seems right. very obvious, correct? Like, oh, I agree. he's a white male in his 20s. Oh, he doesn't have a... Right. Well, uh, the neighborhood told you that. Yeah. I can also tell you he probably wears an orange parka. <laughs> Considering like everything he did to these bodies. Yeah. He's obviously not a 
what you consider, I guess, a normal human being in society. But maybe in the 70s, this wasn't so obvious. I mean, yeah. I feel like we know a lot more about profiling now. Mm-hmm. So police also didn't believe he would be able to live with anyone except perhaps his family members. And because his attacks had occurred during the nine to five working hours during the week, they didn't believe they were looking for someone who even had a career. They thought his social skills would be too limited to be a good manipulator or con man. So he wouldn't have been using ruses to gain entry into people's houses. He surprised his victims in blitz attacks and then killed them quickly. And finally, they believed he'd most likely have been institutionalized in his lifetime and probably recently. This sudden burst of violent activity suggested someone who had recently been released. Biondi and Haybecker agreed that these were all plausible possibilities, and this was as useful a guide to narrowing down potential suspects as any. Over the next 24 hours, the tip hotline was flooded with calls with tips that ultimately led nowhere. Blind alleys and dead ends. One caller even suggested Ted Bundy as a suspect. Oh, that's funny because it's around the... Well, this was early 1978, so Bundy had yet to become a household name. Okay. But at the time, he was suggested he had just escaped from a Colorado jail while oh, awaiting trial right. for murder. But we know it wasn't Bundy because he was already in Florida at this time, yet no one knew his whereabouts. Mm. Did he mutilate bodies? Do you know? I'm I'm not sure on the specifics, but I do know he did stuff to bodies after they were already dead. Got it. I just I assume he didn't do what is being explained. Well, and... But I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about Bundy. Right. One of the leads that came in the day after the multiple murders at Evelyn's house was from a young woman named Nancy Holden. She phoned to report having an uncomfortable encounter with a man she'd gone to high school with. It was on the morning of January 23rd, the day Teresa Wallen was murdered, and it was at the pantry market, the grocery store behind Teresa's house, where she had gone to cash a check shortly before her murder. Nancy, the informant, said she had just parked her car in the pantry market parking lot and was making her way through the store when she heard a voice call out her name. She turned around and saw a filthy-looking man she didn't immediately recognize, and he asked her, weren't you on Kurt's motorcycle when he was killed? She was taken totally aback by this bizarre question. The Kurt this man was referring to was a guy she had dated in high school like a decade earlier, and he had died in a motorcycle accident years after the relationship had ended. She told the man, no, who are you? It's Rick, he said. Oh, you're Rick Chase, she replied. You're Nancy Westfall, he replied. This was her maiden name. She was now married. Then he nodded and walked away. However, minutes later, he reappeared in her aisle, trying to make chit-chat with her. She wasn't interested, but she also couldn't avoid him. It was a small store. So she asked him what he had been up to lately. He asked her where she was going. He followed her to the cash register with an orange drink in his hand, asking her question after question. When she was finished at the register, she made a beeline for the parking lot. Chase called out to her, but she ignored him. And as she backed out of the parking spot, he reached out and tried to grab the handle of her passenger door. But he just missed it as she peeled out of the parking lot and sped away. This is so, so scary. She watched in her rearview mirror as Chase then walked away to the rear of the market. The information was written down and the lead was handed to two detectives, Bill Roberts and Carol Daly. Roberts and Daly began looking into Rick Chase. They ran his name through the state DMV's database. His full name was Richard Trenton Chase and he was 27 years old, 5 foot 11 and 140 pounds. So far, none of this ruled him out. 
And his address, an apartment complex, was a five-minute walk from where Daniel Meredith's red station wagon had been found abandoned. Detectives Roberts and Daly drove out to the complex and knocked on the door of apartment 12, where Richard Chase was reported to be living. A man opened the door and identified himself as Gerald Berenger. He said he had no idea who Richard Chase was, but the detectives weren't buying it. They asked Berenger to produce some identification, and he did. They were satisfied the man wasn't Richard Chase. They left and returned to the office, and Roberts ran Chase's name through the Sacramento County Sheriff's records. I'm not sure why he didn't do this before they left the office, but whatever. They learned that Chase had been arrested for carrying a concealed weapon in 1973, mm. a .22 caliber handgun. Okay. And for escaping from the American River Hospital's psychiatric ward in 1976. So at this point, he's looking better and better as a suspect. The inpatient records from American River Hospital described Chase as violent, and they further discovered that he had been a suspect in a 1968 shooting. It's safe to say police now believe Richard Chase was their man. And looking at a recent arrest report, they realized that Chase now lived in apartment 15 and not apartment 12. He had recently moved a few doors down. They returned to the apartment complex at Watt Avenue and tracked down the apartment manager. She said Chase had lived there for a while. He was a quiet tenant, she said, didn't cause any problems, although he had been observed carrying a rifle at least twice by other tenants in the complex. Though this was totally legal and wasn't against the apartment complex rules, so nothing was done about it. The manager also revealed that Chase's mother paid his rent every month. His mother described her son as a victim of LSD abuse and said he had mental problems that were triggered by his drug use. When she would drop by to visit her son, he would refuse to let her in the apartment and would only talk to her through the locked front door. So he had an odd, possibly strained relationship with his mother. They then asked the apartment manager what kind of car Chase drove. It was a 1966 Ford Ranchero. Remember, the man who bought the puppies from the breeder who later found her puppies shot and mutilated? That guy was also driving a Ford Ranchero. At this point, they had the manager lead them out toward apartment 15. He's a very private person, she explained to them. He probably won't answer the door. And he didn't. They knocked and knocked and knocked. Sheriff's department, they announced no answer. They returned to the manager's apartment and she allowed them to use her phone to dial Chase's apartment. Bill Roberts placed the call. After two rings, a man answered. Hello, Richard, Roberts said to him. Who's this? Richard asked. Bill, answered Bill. Is this Richard? Yes, replied the voice on the other end. Do I know you? Detective Roberts explained who he was and Chase then promptly hung up. The detective then called back, but this time there was no answer. So Roberts stepped outside and consulted with his colleagues. He's in there, he told him. He just answered his phone. Trying to figure out what to do to get this probably armed man to exit his apartment without incident, they decided to try a ruse. The plan they hatched was they would return to apartment 15 and while standing near the door, they would, at a volume loud enough to be heard by Richard Chase inside, make like they were giving up and leaving, like they were just going to return later. So they did this. And then they started walking towards the street before stealthily doubling back and hiding in the doorways of two nearby apartments. And the ruse worked. After several minutes, the door of apartment 15 suddenly popped open and out walked Richard Chase carrying a cardboard box. As he shut the door behind him and began walking toward his car, he heard a booming voice behind him. Stop, sheriff's deputies. Chase then began running, running toward the street as the deputies pursued him on foot. 
Suddenly, another detective jumped out of the doorway and startled him. Trace threw his cardboard box at the deputy who removed his forty-five from his holster and cracked it over Richard Chase's head. Good. Chase fell to the ground, but almost as quickly he began rising. And then another cop jumped him from behind and wrestled him to the ground. That cop felt a hard lump under Chase's armpit, and when he pulled the shirt sleeve back, he saw that it was Chase's twenty-two caliber handgun. That's when the deputy drew his thirty-eight. There's all sorts of different calibers of guns involved here and placed it to Chase's head, threatening to blow his brains out if he tried anything. Dang. I will say these cops in 1970 were taking cues from it. Dirty Harry. But I mean, after what he did, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I have a problem with it. When you consider how deranged this guy was, um, this didn't influence Richard Chase. He just kept struggling. Several deputies at this point were trying to subdue Chase and grab his weapon, which was still tightly tucked beneath Chase's armpit. Chase kept trying to reach for it, and when he couldn't access his armpit, he tried going for his hip pocket, which at this point was an unknown variable. What was there? Another firearm? These cops were surprised by how much strength this scrawny, malnourished-looking guy had. He had a lot of fight in him. It took what felt like an eternity of struggling with him before they managed to slip half a pair of handcuffs on one of his wrists. Meanwhile, one of the officers finally managed to pry the handgun from Chase's armpit, which had actually been secured to a holster he had wow. strapped under his chest. And it took what felt like Herculean force to ratchet Chase's other arm behind his back into the other half of the handcuffs. It was like arm wrestling. But they managed to accomplish this, and finally Chase was in handcuffs. They looked inside the cardboard box he'd been carrying that he had tossed to the deputy, and they found a bunch of bloody rags. And when they searched his pockets, what did they find in his hip pocket? The one he'd been reaching for? It was a wallet with Daniel Meredith's driver's oh license in it. They knew they had their man, no doubt. But Chase insisted he hadn't done anything wrong and demanded to be let go. As he was being taken to the sheriff's station for interrogation, they began a search of his apartment. The apartment was an absolute mess. There was a putrid smell pervading the air. Everything in the apartment was bloodstained. The floors throughout the apartment, the bed, the bathtub, the walls, the kitchen, even the half-eaten loaf of French bread in the living room was stained with blood. Drinking glasses were stained with blood. In the oh refrigerator, they found a Tupperware container with brain matter inside of it. I wonder if he was a cannibal. Well, the blender in the kitchen was stained with blood and oh. remnants of human organs and smelled rancid. Pieces of bone were found throughout the kitchen Back at the station in the interrogation room, Richard Chase continued to maintain his innocence. The detectives tried to chip away at his resolve. They let him know they had fingerprints, shoe prints, ballistic evidence, and then it seemed like he was beginning to open up. He admitted to shooting the dog, and then admitted to killing several dogs. In the ballistics lab, Chase's 22 caliber gun was matched to the gun used in the six murders, but even confronting him with all of this evidence didn't get Chase to budge. The next day, they brought bloodhounds out to Chase's apartment complex, but nothing turned up. When they talked to the hospital he had escaped, they learned that he would kill animals, kill rabbits. One day, they found him with blood smear smeared all over his mouth, and they discovered he'd captured a pair of birds by reaching out through the bars of his oh room, my. grabbed them, and pulled them into his room, and then snapped their necks and drank their blood. So he's a cannibal. That's when police... Or, or a vampire. Right. Well, that's when the hospital staff began referring to him as Dracula. Chase would eventually confess his crimes to a jailhouse trustee and finally to the psychiatrist who interviewed him while he was awaiting trial. Chase told them once he was living on his own, he began capturing and torturing animals to death. 
and then drinking their blood. He said sometimes he would go out still and eat the pets of his neighbors, and he admitted to firing his handgun into the home of Dorothy Polensky and to shooting Ambrose Griffin. In December of 1977, he entered a downward spiral, and that was when he started his killing spree. And he really did think of himself as a vampire. So there is obviously no rhyme or reason why he did this. It was just purely he liked killing and drinking blood. Well, and if you remember, police are still looking for the missing baby. The body was never found. Forgot about that. So once he started confessing, they asked him what happened, and he said he had eaten the baby's brains at the home. Oh, my gosh. Trigger warnings to the max, by the way. Yeah. This This is insane. And I can't really describe to you what he did with the baby's corpse, except to say that he consumed every part of it he could have consumed, and used his blender to make smoothies in the process. Complete and utter danger to anybody that's around him. And I know that that seems awful, but there are details even worse that uh, I, yeah, had to be left out. I do not want to know. I mean, there are plenty of people with paranoid schizophrenia in this world, and virtually none of them have done things like what Richard Chase has done. So this is without a doubt the sickest criminal we have ever covered on this podcast because in combination with the physical things i talked about there was also sexual things happening at every single one of these murders that i've left out um this was a boogeyman's boogeyman in may of 1979 chase was found guilty on six counts of first degree murder and various other charges and despite his attorney's appeals for clemency and his history of mental illness and their attempt to use the insanity plea chase was sentenced to die in california's gas chamber but he would never make it to the gas chamber. His fellow inmates, once he was at San Quentin, were terrified of him. These hardened, violent San Quentin inmates, the worst of the worst, were afraid of Richard Chase. Can you blame them, though? I mean, like... So what happened? Did they kill him? They wanted him dead, and as is the case with many a child killer in prison, because he did kill children, Mm -hmm. he was like a marked man. These inmates were so afraid of him, they didn't even want to get close enough to kill him, so they tried to convince him to do it himself, to hoard his antidepressants and overdose, and that's exactly what he did. No way. It was on the evening of December 26, 1980, three days shy of the three-year anniversary of Ambrose Griffin's murder. A guard doing a routine cell check noticed Chase lying in an awkward position on his bed, not moving and not breathing. He was then pulled out of his cell and pronounced dead. At autopsy, it was confirmed he'd overdosed. He had been hoarding them for three weeks and consumed the entire stash at once. The vampire of Sacramento was now dead. And that's the story of the vampire of Sacramento. Isn't it interesting, like, that this is not a more household name for a serial killer? How have I never heard of this? I think... Okay. I mean, I haven't heard a lot of them, but... Right. Well, the issue is the details are so bad. They're so bad. I think a lot of people don't talk about it. I... I don't even know what to say in cases like this because I can't try to comprehend what they're thinking. I can't try can't. to, I don't know. There's not, what am I, what am I supposed to, what am I supposed to say? A sick, sick man and started with animals, had a hard relationship with his mom. I mean, all the signs were there. I think if there's oh. one thing that brings a little bit of relief it's that he quickly killed his victims before doing yeah. any of the torturing. Yeah. Um, that doesn't real doesn't make anything better. No. Doesn't give justice, doesn't do anything, but at least yeah. it helps to know that 
there wasn't this torturing being done while they were alive, at least in most of the cases. And do they know how many people he's killed in total, like overall, or no? They only had those victims. Those you victims, said. yeah. Okay, I'm, I, I'm sure there's more. Uh, uh-huh. Maybe not. I mean, I guess it sounded like he escaped, went on a rampage, spiraled, spiraled. But I well, all the pets. I mean, so sad that they were all just brutally killed. That is horrible. Yeah. Oh, especially as like a husband to find your wife or to find people you love like that. I just can't. And he would just go door to door. He would just go door to door in the neighborhoods, waiting for one to open. No, or... do not open your door. Yeah. It's just evil. All right, you guys, that is our case for this week, and we will see you next time with another episode. I love it. And I hate it. Goodbye. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money.